number two, the Pete Callender Show. Welcome. Thanks a lot for hanging out. I appreciate it. 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110 uh, are the phone numbers. You can also email Pete at thepetecallendershow.com and uh, on Twitter at Pete Callender, where I'm seeing um, that Governor Cooper got a candy apple at the State Fair. A candied apple. He's just awful. Candy apple? Who, who does that? You? You eat candy apples? No. Of all the things to eat at the North Carolina State Fair, that's what you go for? You go for a candied apple? The, the sheer size of that thing. Right. Like, then what else? You're going to be full. You're going to have, like, a, a sugar high, and then you're going to crash. Yeah. Like, right. Renfest-style turkey legs and stuff, or deep-fried Twinkies. Like, that's what you go for. Come on, man. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's ice cream available. Maybe, oh, hey, that that's how we get Joe Biden to North Carolina to campaign for Sherry Beasley. You got to find out when she's going to be at the state fair, and, and then uh, we tell Biden there's ice cream. Chocolate, chocolate chip. Do you see this thing? He's... Yeah, there's another video of him out there chomping down on his ice cream and talking smack about how great the economy is. It's just so bad. So, so bad. All right. Um, I digress. The uh, Supreme Court candidates navigate partisan campaigning and judicial integrity. Smoky Mountain News reports by Kyle Parati uh, on the candidates that are running. So let's run through in case you are interested. Uh, here are. Uh, here's a quick rundown of the candidates. You got Lucy Inman versus Richard Dietz. All right. Lucy Inman is the Democrat and uh, Richard Dietz is the Republican. This is seat three. They just number them one through seven. So seat three on the Supreme Court of North Carolina is being vacated by Robin Hudson. Robin Hudson is... Um, She's going to be 72. And when in North Carolina, you are forced into retirement at 72 if you are a judge. State law says you, you, you got you to gotta retire. But then they can bring you back for, like, some spot work, which is weird. But whatever. Um, the Democrat running to replace Hudson is Lucy Inman. Her love for the court was cultivated during her first brief career as a print reporter, which led her to cover the cops and courts beat. Then she went to law school. Uh, she did some uh, clerking at the uh, North Carolina Supreme Court under Chief Justice James Exum. And um, then she uh, and she moved to California and then came back. And um, 2006, she starts thinking about uh, getting a seat on the bench or something. She gets encouraged uh, to do so. After applying for multiple vacant Superior Court seats, she finally gets appointed to one by Governor Bev Perdue in 2010. In 2014, she then wins a seat on the Court of Appeals. She decided to make a run for the Supreme Court seat in the 2020 election, but she lost to Republican Phil Berger Jr. by a narrow margin. So she might not be a strong candidate here. She lost to Phil Berger Jr. by a, in 2020. So her opponent is Republican Richard Dietz. 
He is from the mountains of central Pennsylvania, but attended Wake Forest Law School, after which he clerked under a U.S. District Court judge in West Virginia, spent some time in D.C. He then began practicing in North Carolina, uh, became a partner uh, in uh, Winston-Salem. He handled high-profile, complex appellate cases, along with writing briefs and researching case law. He said he spent a lot of his time up at the podium answering judges' questions. And when you do that for your whole career, for a lot of appellate lawyers, it's the dream to put on the robe and decide these cases. In 2014, as Dietz was coming off arguing Abramsky versus United States, a prominent gun control case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, Governor Pat McCrory appointed him to the Court of Appeals to fill a vacancy. Dietz said the appointment felt natural, given his established history handling appellate cases, uh, and he defended his seat in 2016. So he has already won statewide race uh, as well and defended the seat. So that's the seat three race. Seat five, you see what I mean? Like There, there really isn't a lot to, to learn from the candidates because, I mean, I don't know if the reporter's don't know about the judicial philosophy or, I mean, because they're reporters, they're not lawyers, they're not constitutional scholars asking questions. So it's difficult to kind of get at uh, their, their philosophies because they can't talk about any case, right? That would violate the code of ethics. So you're left with the party affiliation that you see on the ballot, the D and the R it's a heuristic, right? It's a shorthand. It's, Oh, okay. This person politically philosophically, is probably going to be more in line with me than not. That's what people look at. That's what they see with the D's and the R's. Over at seat five, there is an incumbent for this seat. His name is Sam Irvin IV. He has held a spot on the Supreme Court since 2014. It would be fair to say donning the robe is in Irvin's blood. His grandfather was a judge before becoming a U.S. senator. His father was a state and federal judge for about 30 years. And his brother is a sitting Superior Court judge. He is a Democrat. He ran for the Court of Appeals initially in 2008. He won that race and then went on to the Supreme Court in 2014. He is facing off against Trey Allen. Allen is the only candidate that actually went through a primary race, and he had a strong showing in that primary. Allen cut his teeth as a Marine Corps JAG, a judge advocate general, lawyer guy, right, uh, deployed to Iraq. He is currently the general counsel for the North Carolina Administrative Office of the Court, the AOC, not that AOC. But that's the AOC is charged with running the judicial system statewide, and he is a lawyer for the AOC. And prior to that... He was an associate professor of public law and government at the UNC School of Government, which, if you don't know anything about this organization, like cities and counties, local governments, reporters, they call on the School of Government all the time. The uh, profe- you know, like the, the bureaucrats, the professional staff, they, they, they ask, and legal counsel, they will ask the School of Government all sorts of questions to get their opinions, to get legal opinions. Um, on various government-related things, you know, boring stuff like, you know, how to how to hold votes and what, what kind of policies are correct and legal and whatever. So, but so he was giving out this this law. So he's very, you would assume, right? He's very well versed now in North Carolina law. Um, 
let's see, he does not have any uh, experience on the bench, though. He feels his experience in academia will translate well, given the unique role the school of government plays. Quote, local governments and judges turn to faculty for unbiased legal opinions. Wait, faculty does that? Anyway, we all had the same commitment to giving our best assessment of what the law was with regard to any issue brought to us. He said he worked well with his colleagues despite his conservative views, putting him in the political minority. The Supreme Court is where the real problem is now, he said. The problem I have in mind is the problem of political judgments, or at least what are perceived by the public as political judgments. So there's another publication that launched recently in North Carolina called The Assembly, a bunch of old newspaper people. And uh, they pushed out a story the other day called The Most Important Election You Know Nothing About. And it posed two questions. Are our courts too politicized? And is there a better way to decide who becomes a judge than via partisan elections? Okay. And in this analysis... This idea of the politicization of the court, specifically the the state Supreme Court, has, they say, increasingly been a topic of conversation. But it is now heated up even more than ever. At the heart of some of those conversations have been Justice Phil Berger Jr., who is still in his first term, early in his first term, who endorsed Trey Allen in the primary. Likewise, North Carolina Supreme Court Chief Justice Paul Newby also voiced support for Trey Allen in a tweet that was not technically an endorsement. And this prompted an ethical debate among those interested in the integrity of the bench. Now, I would point out here, there are no examples of any kind of political acts that Democrats have engaged in that might also prompt some concerns about the politicization of the court. For example... Fast-tracking two cases right before an election when you don't need to fast-track them, but you do so in order to get a ruling decided by you and your majority. That might undermine people's confidence and credibility in the court, don't you think? News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here. Going over this uh, story in the Smoky Mountain News. It is very lengthy. It is like a seven-page story on the races for the state Supreme Court. And it gives a bit of a breakdown. You know, goes over the candidates, as I just read uh, read through uh, the four of them, the, the uh, two Democrats that are running for the two seats and the two Republicans. And uh, then it goes into this politicization argument that the courts are being politicized. And the only examples that they gave were Phil Berger and, and Paul Newby that endorsed somebody in a primary, Trey Allen. They endorsed Trey Allen in a primary. And they say that that's, these are two examples of the politicization. But as I mentioned earlier, WRAL, News and Observer, all of these other state publications, they always point to the politicization of the court as being tied to the move by Republicans when they took back control or took control for the first time in a century and a half uh, of the general assembly, they removed, or I'm sorry, no, hang on, I'm going to start that again. When the Republicans took control of the general assembly, they 
put back in place the D's and the R's on the ballots next to the judges' uh, names in their races because the Democrats, when they were in charge, took them off the ballots. And they said this was done, you know, to depoliticize the courts. But also, wink, wink, it was done because if you don't know who the judges are, then you don't know who to vote for. And so people would just leave them blank. And that gives those who do vote outsized power. It also lets you run campaigns, as the Democrats did, calling themselves the fair slate or something, the fair judges slate. And it was like all Democrats. And it gives you cover to do that. And look at uh, look at these lawyers. They're running for judgeships, and they got all these endorsements from all these other judges, and you can trust them. And like, oh, okay, I, I don't know anything about it. And so that was how they were sort of gaming the system, right? And so Republicans come into power, and they start implementing, they start putting the, uh, the D's and the R's back into the races. And if the story I was told, the, the last race... Or the, yeah, the last um, election was uh, to get the D's and the R's put back. I think was I think that was the race Bob Edmonds lost to Mike Morgan, and there's a mention of Mike Morgan winning as one of the reasons that precipitated the change. But it was my understanding that Bob Edmonds did not want the D and the R on his race. He was like, "Oh no, I'll win." I'll win fair and square. I don't need the D's and the R's. He's a Republican. Mike Morgan's a Democrat. Mike Morgan appeared ahead of, if I remember correctly, appeared ahead of him on the ballot. So if you believe in the ballot placement, also a name like Mike Morgan, you don't, I mean, you, there's there's no, you know, racist baggage attached to that, right? You, it's just a Bob Edmonds and Mike Morgan. What do you know about these two guys? Nothing. And so you just Christmas tree the thing. Right. You just pick one. If you're even voting, you just pick one of the names. And that's what happened. And Edmonds lost his seat. And then Republicans were like, OK, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, that race. Now we'll put the D's and the R's onto the ballot for that uh, election, too. Bob Orr. Bob Orr. He's a former state Supreme Court justice. Long time. I have interviewed the guy over the years. He was a Republican, became never Trumper and uh, anti Madison Cawthorn. He is the go to quote machine for media looking to get a perspective on the courts. I don't know why he's always the person. Well, I kind of do. The, the resume I just gave you is why, right? He's media friendly, he is willing to bash Republicans at every turn, but you can always say he was a Republican judge. See, so it's bipartisan, right? So he spent much of his career practicing law in Western North Carolina before serving as an appellate judge and then eventually an associate Supreme Court justice from 1995 to 2004. Orr said, the state has seen judicial races change significantly over recent years as they've become more politicized. He note, by the way, Orr was one of the guys that drew the maps. He was one of the special masters that Democrats tapped to draw the maps that uh, we are going to be voting under now for the congressional races. Or also noted that the uptick in challenges to legislation that have come before the court has also increased the number of cases that are perceived as political. He is correct. He is correct. 
more challenging. Now, I don't know why he says it's hard to evaluate or sorry, it's hard not to evaluate a politically charged piece of litigation, whether it's redistricting, voter ID or separation of powers. Now, I would suspect he blames the Republicans for passing the laws in the first place, not Democrats for suing over them. Right, because it takes two to tango here, right? The Republican Party chairman, Michael Watley, he said his party's strategy and the importance he has placed on judicial races since he took up the role in 2019, uh, he has a law degree, by the way, Watley does. Um, He clerked for a federal judge in Charlotte uh, for a time. And when he became the chairman, Democrats had a 6-1 majority on the state Supreme Court. And the first meeting, he says, literally the first meeting I had as party chair was with Paul Newby to talk about our Supreme Court races and what kind of a campaign we needed to put together to win statewide judicial races. And they did two things. First, we put all of the Supreme Court and Court of Appeals candidates together as a slate. We want to build brand recognition as conservative judges because North Carolina voters overwhelmingly support conservative judges over activist judges. Hence the concern over politicization. This is the concern. This is, oh, it's getting very political. Why is it getting political? If voters have usually supported conservative judges for decades, why is it getting political? Why, is, why does that seem to be something that's happening now versus not before? Could it be that maybe the Democratic Party doesn't have anything in common anymore with the vast majority of people that are voting for conservative judges? They don't hold the same principles when it comes to jurisprudence? Maybe there's, maybe there's something there. Like maybe there's a reason. The party also created the Judicial Victory Fund. Watley said they raised like over a million dollars, poured them into judicial races in the 2020 cycle, and that helped uh, Paul Newby beat Sherry Beasley. Which, by the way, Paul Newby ran against Sherry Beasley and beat her because he was mad that Roy Cooper named her as the chief justice when tradition was that the senior-ranking judge would become the chief justice. When Mark Martin retired out and took a job as a chancellor or something, or, you know, up in a college, whatever, in Virginia, um, Mark Martin left. Newby thought he should get that because that that's what the tradition always was. And Cooper said no. He wanted the, you know, history-making first female black woman to be judge. I'm not saying she wasn't qualified. She was, you know, she's a judge. So, but they put her on the bench as a Supreme court chief justice and newbie got mad and newbie ran against her and beat her. I try to tell people when they like the pettiness in politics is real. I'm not saying this, that I'm not saying newbie ran because of pettiness, but like personal slights and, and you know, things like that, these grievances, they can motivate people to run for offices. Absolutely. And they stick in people's craw and they don't have good relationships with each other for stuff like this. Absolutely. So there's been rancor on the court because of that, too, because Roy Cooper. But nobody ever makes that connection either. I bought 27 miles. Barbed wire. Uh, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. 
Talking about these two uh, races for you, uh, the state Supreme Court, the North Carolina State Supreme Court, two races on the ballot, seats three and five. And uh, over on seat three, uh, you got Lucy Inman, right? And she is a uh, former reporter turned lawyer, and uh, she has experience as a judge. She said, and as the other judges did as well, said that they would rule based on their interpretation of the law and not their political party or what may conform with anyone else's agenda. Right? See what I mean? Everybody always says the same thing. So if you don't have the D's and the R's on the ballot next to their name, how do you know what what their interpretation of the law might be? Because they say this like, oh, I'm going to rule based on my interpretation of the law. Right. And that could be anything. So how do I know what your interpretation is going to be, generally speaking, right? And so the D, the R, gives me an idea of your judicial philosophy. Not all the time, but it's a pretty good shorthand. In addition, while the candidates cannot express what they feel towards certain issues, three of the four openly lamented the partisan judicial elections. Again, They hold this up as like this is the reason why the courts have become politicized or are losing credibility. I just disagree. I really do. I I think it's a cop-out. I think it's an easy excuse. It is easy to just say, well, you know, now I got to go to these fundraisers. And, you know, if I'm a Republican judge running, then, you know, I kind of look. I think one of them said something like, oh, it's kind of like you're like you're cheating on your spouse or something. If you go meet with some other people that aren't the same party or whatever, that's on you. If you're a judge and you want to go sp- and you're a Republican, you want to go speak to the local Democrat group to try to win some support, go do it. Right? Go do that. Go talk to the go talk to the local Democrat lawyers and see if there's any interest in having you as a guest at one of their events or something like that. You can do that. So this idea that, oh, we got to tell people that we're a Democrat or Republican, that's why it's all political. Mm-mm. No, I th- I'd say it's more political because this is the venue that the left is using to advance its agenda in this state. And by the way, it's also happening at the national level for much the same reason, that the left has been able to use the Supreme, the U.S. Supreme Court to advance its agenda. And now they can't. The first time in my lifetime, the first time that conservatives hold the court And now all of a sudden, oh my gosh, it's not a credible institution. We can't trust it. It's political. Like all of a sudden when the left loses control of an institution for the first time in like three generations, now all of a sudden the the model is broken. Are we back? Well, what was that about? That was just a random EAS signal that came down. Sorry, I don't know if you heard that. If this, is, if you're listening on the podcast, I don't know if that came through. Uh, but don't have any information as to what that broadcast signal was like. We didn't get the light up uh, on the board in here either to let us know. So no test was scheduled. Don't know what that was about. It's probably the Russians. Um, I don't remember where I was. So anyway, so I'll just start again here from the uh, uh, from the piece. Again, this is from uh, Smoky Mountain News. Inman and the other judges... Uh, say that the public sometimes looks at judges as candidates and says this person, oh, sorry, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, Dietz. Uh, Rich, I always forget his first name. 
Yeah, Richard Dietz. Um, Dietz said campaigning in a partisan judicial election puts more of a spotlight on those candidates within their own parties. The public sometimes looks at judges as candidates and says this person seems to be on a political mission. They're hanging around with politicians and that sort of thing. Then when the candidates become a judge and they rule, then the public has that perception. The whole point of judges is that we can't do that. In every case, we set aside our personal views and look at the case fresh. Right, but you have a judicial philosophy. I think that over the last year or two, I have encountered more voters who have said the court seemed so political. I don't remember it being like this in the past. While Dietz spoke about how the political process may harm people's perception of the court, Trey Allen did not go quite that far. He agreed there's reason to be concerned about the erosion of trust, but he believes there are pluses and minuses to both partisan and nonpartisan judicial elections. I like this guy already. I like him already. Why? Because he says there are pros and cons. You know how few things in life are strictly good or strictly bad? Right? Most things, yeah, pros and cons. Upsides, downsides. Is the juice worth the squeeze? Right? You got to do these analyses. He says one plus is that party affiliation gives voters at least some additional information about some judicial candidates to the extent they associate certain party labels with certain judicial philosophy. Exactly. A heuristic. Along with some states having nonpartisan judicial elections or uh, merit selections, some other states only fill spots on the bench by appointment. And Democrats wanted to go to, they've been, yeah, this has been one of their things. When they started losing races, they started talking about making appointments. They wanted it to be uh, gubernatorial appointments. See, because they win more governor's races in North Carolina. So they think the governor should make these appointments to all the benches all over the state. Allen believes judicial elections are a good method of picking judges since it allows voters to hold them accountable at the ballot box. He says it's not a perfect system by any means, but there needs to be some mechanism of accountability. I agree. Sam Irvin, he shared the overall concern about the politicization, whether or not judges are ruling in ways that would advance their party's agenda. The perception alone is damaging. He said, well, hey, judge, how about you stop doing it then? You're an incumbent. You're the only incumbent running up there. Why don't you stop doing the things on the state Supreme Court that presents concerns for people like me? I watch you fast track a couple of cases so you can get them uh, before you, so you can issue your rulings before you guys lose your majority. That is a straight up partisan political move. And you don't want me to identify it as that? I'm sorry, but I am. I'm going to. I've read, I've read enough of the opinions that came from this 4-3 split majority, and it's quite clear you guys are using motivated reasoning to get to the results you want. I'm, I'm supposed to not notice that? I think what's really going on is that the, a lot of them don't like the fact that people don't accept their rulings as true. Like, they issue their opinions, and that becomes, you know, the standing jurisprudence, but that doesn't mean I agree with it. And I think that there's this element of, like, I ruled this way, so therefore I'm right. And you have a large segment of the population that's like, no, you're not. <laughs> we don't care how you ruled. We, st- we, think, we think you you pulled a partisan uh, move. He said, I'm concerned that over time the decision is going to make judges look more political. And if that perception develops, 
I don't see how there's any likelihood that it would not impair public confidence in the courts. I haven't done a study of survey data to see what the status of the situation is now, but I'm very concerned that the continued use of this new method for electing judges will impair the concreteness of the court. No, here, it's not him. It's not his actions. No, no, no. It's the, it's the, it's the system. It's like systemic racism, right? There's no individual responsible for undermining credibility of the court. No, no, no. It's just, it's, it's structural. That's why people, by the way, we used to elect, they used to know the, the D's and the R's on the judges races, and then they got rid of it and then they brought it back again. So this idea that we couldn't possibly have politicized courts before because the, the system was different. It wasn't okay. We had the same system before. So Democrats and Republicans both seem to understand how much is at stake when it comes to protecting their values and agendas through the courts. So writes Kyle Parati at SmokyMountainNews.com. The stakes for the Supreme Court of North Carolina, these races, are going to be even higher if Republicans manage to secure super majorities in the House and Senate. Because that would mean they could overturn any veto that Roy Cooper issues. If that happens and Republicans are able to move their agenda forward with no resistance, some of these cases are highly likely to face litigation that will end up before the state Supreme Court. uh, court. Because, I would add, when Democrats lose, they sue. That That has been very clear for the last decade in North Carolina. There was a piece by Beckett Adams at the Washington Examiner the other day. Headline, our our institutions are legitimate so long as the left is in charge. And he is so correct. I mean, mean, the premise is not, the statement itself is not correct, but this is the mentality. The Supreme Court this summer handed conservatives a victory nearly 50 years in the making when it overturned Roe v. Wade. Liberals, including Supreme Court Justice Elena Kagan, took the defeat poorly. So poorly, in fact, they're taking up questioning the legitimacy of the court itself. And this type of reaction is par for the course for liberals. When courts become extensions of the political process, Kagan said, when people see them as extensions of the political process, when people see them as trying just to impose personal preferences on a society irrespective of the law, that's when there is a problem, and that's when there ought to be a problem. She said if there's a new member of a court, and all of a sudden everything is up for grabs, all of a sudden very fundamental principles of law are being overthrown or being replaced, and people have a right to say, what's going on there? That doesn't seem very law-like. That's a new word. (laughs) Law-like? That doesn't seem very law-like. I guess you can't say lawyerly. Law, but uh, lawy? Well, yeah, yeah, I guess law-like. The majority opinion written by Justice Samuel Alito debunked the notion that the Constitution guarantees a right to abortion, which, by the way, even lefty legal scholars admitted Roe was an egregious misreading of the Constitution. For the entirety of Roe's existence, they said that. They sent the matter back to the states for voters and lawmakers to decide. It's a perfectly reasonable and sound opinion, legally speaking. 
Politically speaking, however, the Dobbs decision is not the outcome liberals wanted, so like with everything else that doesn't go their way, they try to undermine the legitimacy of a conservative victory by undermining the authority of the institution from which it came. He's exactly right. You know, you ever see a fish called Wanda? <laughs> Kevin Klein character. But, you know, he's like super patriotic American. And John Cleese starts like trying to distract him, trying to get his goat, trying to like goad him into overreact because he was prone to overreacting and, ex- you know, explosive temper and all this. And so he's trying to goad him into. And what does he do? He starts saying, you know, because uh, John Cleese is British. Kevin Klein's American, and he says, you lost Vietnam, and Kevin Klein keeps saying, we didn't lose, that was a tie, that was a tie, and he just gets angrier and angrier. Like, that's, this is the kind of thing that, like, this, this, this mindset is pervasive among a lot of people on the political left, that once we lost control of this body, it's no longer legitimate, because we lost. That's why you get, at the Electoral College, uh, level, right? You you get these pushes to get rid of the Electoral College when they lose it, right? You get the push to blow up the filibuster, right? When they can't get around it, right? If they don't control it, then somehow or another, it's structurally, systemically unfair. It's, it's broken. Can anybody govern those types of questions? But for Kagan to be saying this stuff, she did this at a, uh, forget where it was. She was at some sort of uh, conference, you know, like sitting on one of the comfy chairs and chatting about, uh, you know, things, but not actually talking about specific things. I'm just going to go wink, wink, and you guys know what I'm talking about. But they never stopped to think on the other side here, which is like, how long did Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito serve on the court? And for all those years watching Year after year after year after year, as the liberal majority handed down poorly reasoned and unconstitutional decisions. And how many times over the course of those decades did Alito and Clarence Thomas disparage the legitimacy of the institution? How many times did did Scalia, in a statement of his own, Sam Alito responded this month to Kagan's broadsides against her own place of work, rebuffing his colleague for questioning the court because she disagrees with its recent rulings. He said, quote, but saying or implying the court is becoming an illegitimate institution or questioning our integrity crosses an important line. Now, he sounds surprised. For some reason, Beckett Adams says he shouldn't be. Right. Did he really expect better from her, I mean, she's done this before, but this is also how leftists respond to political defeats in general. You lose a presidential election, abolish the Electoral College, claim the election was rigged. Even election truther and former President Donald Trump, a longtime Democrat, has fallen back on this, uh, on this playbook. Lose a Supreme Court seat, expand the bench. Lose a vote in the Senate, complain it's not fair. That Wyoming gets the same number of U.S. Senators as California, Right. They never compare Rhode Island, by the way. You ever notice that? It's always Wyoming. A Supreme Court decision doesn't go your way? Well, undermine the legitimacy of the entire institution. In other words, it's legitimate only when we win. Maybe that's why people 
are losing confidence in the institutions. Just spitballing here. (laughs) 